I'd like you to open your Bibles, if you would, to Mark chapter 14. And when you get there, we're going to pray. If you are not using your own Bible today and you have one of the programs before you, um, the scripture text, text is printed there for our use this morning. Mark chapter 14. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us. We thank you that in your infinite wisdom, you sent your son to come and to bear the penalty that we deserved to bear. Father, you had said in your word, you said to our first parents that if they disobeyed you, if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they would die. And we know that by that, you meant that there would come physical death to them, as well as spiritual death, separation from fellowship with a holy God. But we are grateful and will be for all eternity. We will praise you for all eternity for the fact that you send Jesus, the one who could be both our Savior and our Lord, the one who in whose sacrifice you would be both just and the justifier of all who believed in him. Father, you kept your word, you punished sin, but for those who believe in Jesus, you punished it on your son. And we will see today that because he accepted the cup that you held out to him and drained every drop, that those who believe in Jesus never have to fear eternal damnation that we will spend eternity with you and with all of those who love Jesus. Father, it's the desire of our hearts that the good news of the gospel be spread to this community, that it be shared with our friends and with our loved ones. And so, Father, today we pray for the lost in this community. We pray, Father, that you will use this church to reach a number of them, we pray that your spirit would go before the efforts of this church and prepare hearts. And we pray, Father, that there might be joy in this congregation as they reach out and as they see people in this area come to know Jesus as Savior and Lord. And as they share the gospel with their friends wherever they might be and watch them respond as your spirit works in their hearts. Father, we all have ones that we're concerned about we have loved ones, Father, we have friends, we have relatives, we have neighbors who know not Jesus, and it breaks our heart, Father, to see the end of them. And we just pray, Father, that you would use us as instruments of your grace, that we might be bold in our presentation of the gospel when doors of opportunity are open for us to share. Father, we pray with the Apostle Paul, who prayed that very prayer, that there would be open doors for him, and that when those doors were open, he would be bold in his proclamation. Father, we are aware today that we are part of a worldwide church. And we recognize, Father, that we worship with believers all over this globe as they worship you on a day set aside for worship uh, of you and your son Jesus through the precious Holy Spirit. We also recognize, Father, that there are those in that group who are suffering for their faith. Father, they don't enjoy the freedoms that we enjoy in this country to assemble and to worship you according to the dictates of our consciences. Father, we pray for that church that you would watch over those who are yours, 
Father, where it's your will for them to lay down their lives in the cause of Jesus, we pray that their blood would be the seed of the church and that the gospel would spread rapidly in areas where it's prosecuted. Father, I thank you for those who are assembled here and those who are worshiping at home. We pray, Father, today that you would help them to see Jesus as we look into your holy word. Father, I pray that you would protect me from speaking things that are unclear and because they're unclear become untruth to those who hear. And I pray, Father, that you would also open the hearts of those who are present so that they might receive what you have for them today. We thank you, Father, for their willingness to invest this time in the study of you and your word. Father, thank you for them. Thank you for Will and for Grace and their precious children. We pray that you would give them rest as they're away from us. Bring them back safely tomorrow. We pray that their trip would be an easy one. And we would pray that they would be rested and relaxed and better equipped to serve you because they have had this break. Father, I'm excited for this church. I thank you for it. Father, what a joy to drive here and to see all the signs out where they're supposed to be and, and the greetings to go the way they're supposed to go. Thank you, Father, for the worship that has taken part to this point, for those who share in that week by week. Thank you for the training that these have received in grace and for the way they're using your gifts for your honor and glory. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1992, in the church that I had been associated with since 1987, I went through one of the worst struggles that I ever experienced in ministry. I had been a minister for a number of years, and most of the difficulties that had happened in my experience happened one at a time, and by God's grace, I was able to lead the session and others in dealing with those things that arose. But in 1992, it seemed like I was in the role of what I imagine an air traffic controller must be in. Instead of things happening one at a time, it seemed like I was dealing with situations that were all over the place, and then I was having to lead the session in guiding all of those situations that were happening at one and the same time. And it was an extremely difficult time for Faith Church. For the first time in my ministry, I found myself in our family room, down on the floor, face in the carpet, praying that God would save our church, that he would deliver me and others who were going through this struggle from the struggle, and that while the struggle continued, he would give me grace, he would give me strength to be able to endure. I was anxious, I was fearful, I was emotionally exhausted, I was functioning, but just basically functioning. Have you been in a situation that's similar to that in your life? Have you been in deepest agony of soul? Have you been in darkness so thick that you questioned whether you could survive it? If you have and you remember what that experience or those experiences were like, then I think it would help you to identify today to some small degree with what Jesus is going through here in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
And let's take a look now and read our text. We read in Mark 14, 32 through 42, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter, James, and John, and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but, you, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again, he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. Jesus had celebrated the feast of Passover with his apostles. One of them, Judas, had left that feast to go and make arrangements to deliver Jesus over to his unjust trial and his terrible, terrible death. The Lord and the 11 apostles that remained left that upper room and walked through the darkened streets of Jerusalem out to a place where they had been on several occasions, maybe every night during Passover. They went out to avoid, I believe, the crowds, the confusion, the noise of a city that just overflowed with people, was just jammed with people during the week of this very special feast. Now we read in Mark 14, 32, Mark recording that Jesus and the, the 11 went to a place called Gethsemane. Luke tells us in 22:39 that Jesus went there as was his custom. John records in John 18, 1 and 2, he went across the brook or the, the creek, the Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Judas knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. You see, this garden was a place of peace, of tranquility, a place where Jesus could fellowship on Passover week with his apostles and where they could pray together. Now, whatever pleasantness Jesus had experienced in this garden on those other nights of Passover, he would not experience here this night. It would not be replicated on this night before his crucifixion. The dark terror of soul that our Savior experiences in this garden on this night in Gethsemane will only be surpassed by the terror he will experience the next day when he hangs between heaven and earth on a Roman cross. Now, there are three things that we're going to look at in this passage this morning. The first is this. 
In the garden, we see that Jesus is fully human, and this is so vitally important. It's absolutely essential to your salvation today that he be fully human. Our text tells us in Mark 14, 32, that Jesus said to eight of his apostles, sit here while I pray. Then verse 33 informs us that he took Peter, James, and John with him to a place that was apart from the other apostles. These three men have been alone with Jesus at other times during his ministry when very special events are taking place in his life and in his work. Now, there are various reasons that commentators give. It's all speculation as to why these three. And I'll tell you what I think. I think it's likely that he takes these three to be closer to him while he prays because these men will be absolutely foundational, as the other apostles will to a degree, to the establishment of the New Testament church. They're going to play most significant roles in the building of the church. So that's part of it, I think. They need to see Jesus in situations where he can't take everybody, where it won't work to take the whole group. They need to see because of the part they'll play in the church. But Jesus felt, I believe, especially close to these three, and that's why he took them. Now, what we're trying to establish here is that Jesus is both fully man and fully God. And as a human, there was a greater closeness between him and some others than there was between him and others. That doesn't mean he didn't love everybody. It's just that as a human, there was better chemistry, there was better affinity, whatever, between him and these men than there was between him and the others in the group. I think Jesus' actions here will help to prove that, that, that Jesus took these men with him for special emotional and spiritual um, help in his time of deep need. As Jesus and these three go to a place in the garden distance from the eight, Mark tells us in verses 33 and 34 that Jesus began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful even unto death. Now, Jesus had been focused on his death this evening. He took that Passover that pointed to his death and he renovated it and made it the bloodless feast that we celebrate today, the Lord's table. But as he takes these three to pray near him and to be close to him, while he prays about his death, a great tidal wave of terror comes over Jesus' soul. It just washes over him. Now, I was trying to think uh, in the week of, of how we could get there and begin to feel what Jesus feels. And for me, it would be being called to the doctor's office after having some tests, sitting down in a chair. And the doctor comes out and says, Jim, I've read the results of your tests. And I hate to tell you this, but it looks like you have a cancer of a type that really doesn't respond well to any of the treatments that are available to us. Can you imagine the flood of anxiety, of horror and dread that would wash over you if you were seated in that position? Well, Jesus experiences such feelings to the fullest extent that a human can. 
the horror he faces, horror he sees fully in his mind's eye, transcends any kind of horror that we will ever experience. And it feels to Jesus like the thoughts of the horror of the cross might kill him. Just the thoughts of that. Mark 14, 34 records Jesus as saying to Peter, James, and John, remain here and watch. Luke records Jesus as saying in Luke 22, 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, I would suggest to you that it's reasonable to think that Jesus said both, that one of the writers of the gospel emphasized watch, the other uh, emphasized pray, but these two commands often go together in scripture. Jesus will say uh, on other occasions, watch and pray. Now, what does watch mean? Well, it means to be wide awake like a sentry at his or her post. The difference in scripture tends to be this. A sentry looks for something to come from the outside and attack the city. Usually in the New Testament, when the command watch is given, it's a command for us, for people to guard their hearts, their thoughts, their own actions. Now here's where I believe Jesus' special emotional connection to these three followers is seen. Jesus, in his time of greatest need, terrorized by the thoughts of the full meaning of the cross, chooses these three men to be physically close to him. Matthew 26, 38 records Jesus is saying to the three, watch with me. The community that he craves, watch with me. Now, again, Jesus is one person with two distinct natures. He has a fully divine nature and a fully human one. Let me ask you another question. In, in situations of life where you're going through something that is incredibly hard, don't you desire to have one or more of the people who are especially close to you uh, nearby? If you were to be wheeled into a surgical suite tomorrow morning, wouldn't it help you emotionally to know that there were two or three brothers and sisters in Christ out there in a waiting room watching, praying for you. The man Christ Jesus, experiencing absolute terror in his soul, needed the support of his closest companions and friends. Now, the scripture tells us that Jesus leaves the three, Mark 14, 35, creating a little distance between himself and the three that he's asked to watch and pray with him. Luke tells us uh, in 2241 that this was about a stone's throw. Typically that term was used for a distance that's less than 50 feet. The scripture then tells us that he knelt down to pray. Jesus needs to have close friends for emotional support. He needs their presence. He desires them to pray for themselves and for him, but he must wrestle alone in prayer with his father. And so he goes off a little distance. If the perfect sinless human needed strong connectedness with others of like precious faith in order to get through life, 
you do too. A Christian man, very active at faith, a leader at faith, told me at lunch a few years ago, I don't need any friends. My wife needs friends. I don't need any friends. At that time, things in his life were going quite well. His world has been shaken to its foundations in every way. I haven't been with him recently to ask him if he still finds that he doesn't need any friends. But I will tell you after 48 years as a pastor that life is unpredictable. Very few people make it all the way to the end unscathed without some sort of physical, emotional trauma. We all need a deep closeness to someone who can help us bear our burdens, Galatians 6.2, when we go through them. And we need to be close to people so that when they're going through the meat grinder, they can have our support. You need to connect with some people that can provide support for you, and you need to provide support for others in their times of need. I was reading a survey this week, and maybe this is a good time for a, a little break here and to look at the survey. It's called, What is Happening to Friendship? And the survey was in uh, Enterprise Institute. Don't know a whole lot about it. But in 1990, they report that 63% of the Americans reported having five or more close friends. You think it's more now or less? In 2021, the figure had dropped to 38%. 12% of the Americans surveyed in this survey said they had no close friends at all. None at all. You need, you need to make connections. Secondly, in the garden, we see that prayer is a means of grace. And there's so much to learn about prayer here, I think, and, and we'll just touch upon it. But Mark records in 1435 that Jesus, after leaving Peter, James, and John, within a distance that actually, if you think about it, allows for them to possibly see Jesus and to hear him, fell on the ground and prayed. Mark records in 2639 that Jesus fell on his face and prayed, Luke records that Jesus, in Luke 22, 41, knelt down and prayed. Now, we believe in the PCA, and this church believes, that the scriptures in the original autographs are without error. So the way God revealed scripture to the people who were writing, what they wrote was absolutely without error. I've been doing this a long time. I've never found errors in scripture. I've never found contradictions that didn't fade when you compared scripture with scripture. Luke records in 2241, knelt down, uh, knelt down, others say fell on the ground. Now, if you think about it, Jesus prays on three separate occasions in our text. Uh, he prays, he goes back to his apostles, he prays, he goes back to his apostles, prays, goes back to his apostles. What I think we have going on here is no contradiction. I think during the time Jesus is praying in these three prayer sessions, that he prays both on his knees with his head down to the ground and sprawled out on the ground like I was on the carpet floor uh, in my family room. So no problem. This is what Calvin says about Jesus uh, in these prayer positions, which were very unusual for Jews. Jews prayed standing with their head lifted up to the Father and their hands lifted up, generally speaking. Jesus prays in that way 
in other places in scripture. But this is what Calvin says about this, and I think it just makes good sense. He says, by the very gesture of falling on the ground, Christ testifies to the real intensity of his prayer. He places himself in the lowest attitude because of the greatness of his grief. Now, Luke is a physician in 2244. He writes that Jesus being in agony, and that's a word for like a strong conflict, like a couple of people who are wrestling in the ring, that kind of thing. Jesus being in agony, prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Now, I think everybody here has heard of cold sweats. The definition um, of, this is of, of this particular term, which is diaphoresis, uh, it refers to a sudden sweating that doesn't come from heat or exertion, but from the body's response to stress. It goes with the fight or flight response often. Now, what is the burden that terrorizes Jesus' soul? Why is his body responding with a fight or flight response? And how is it that many, many martyrs have died for the Christian faith, burned at the stake, etc., and, and went through it without the kind of experience that Jesus experiences? Well, the answer is found in one of the words of Jesus' prayer uh, in Mark 14, 36. Christ prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And here it comes. Remove this cup. It's the cup that does this to Jesus. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In Scripture, to drink a cup means to fully undergo some sort of experience. It could be a good experience or a bad experience. Jesus' cup is filled to the brim with the wrath of God that is the just desert of every single elect sinner. In just hours, Jesus is going to not only experience the cruelest physical death, I think, ever invented by sadistic mankind, but in addition, Christ will bear the sins in his sinless person of those who will believe. He will be counted a sinner by God his Father, and he will experience the punishment we deserve to experience every moment for all of eternity. He will experience our hell so that we might escape it and be reckoned by our Father as as holy as he is. What Jesus experienced vicariously in the garden is what people without Jesus Christ are going to experience in resurrected bodies, by the way, for all eternity. Now, could that be you today? Could that be your case, that you are without Christ and you're going to experience what he experiences forever? Jesus' terror in the garden here should drive you to repentance of your sin and faith in Jesus. Faith in him is your only means for escaping the wrath of Almighty God. But Jesus' physical and emotional response here should also do something for believers. It should cause us to fervently pray for lost people around us, people in your family, your neighborhood, your world, 
and to evangelize unbelievers. Without Jesus, the terror he experiences here is what our loved ones, our friends, are going to experience forever. Now, in Jesus' prayer, we see a few other things. We see an intense battle of the wills. There's the Father's will that Jesus drink the cup of his wrath as the substitute for sinners. But there is the will of the Son which recoils from the thought of bearing the sins of the world. Again, Calvin says it was not simple horror of death, but the sight of the dread tribunal of God that came to Jesus, the judge himself armed with vengeance beyond all understanding. Jesus, fully human, right? Is it any wonder that he would pray looking to this, to the cross, any wonder that he would pray that if there were any other way than to drink this cup, that the Father would use that way. Now, in Jesus' prayer, you can also see his absolute confidence in God's sovereignty. Father, he prays, all things are possible to you. You also see in the midst of the turmoil that God the Father is going to put the Son through that there's still that strong relationship between Jesus and his Father. He uses the affectionate term for his God, Father. And in his prayer, we also see Jesus' complete submission to the will of God. He says, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, yet not as I will, but what you will. Now, there are things in your life that you desperately want and you pray for those things. There are things you want to avoid and you desperately pray that you'll avoid those things. And that's right to do that. James says that we have not because we ask not. We need to come to the Father and we need to ask for those things that are uh, on our hearts uh, if they don't go contrary to the revealed will of God, to what Scripture says. It's also not sinful to articulate things before God that, in your, that are in your heart uh, that are not according to God's revealed will for you. Because God knows your heart anyway. You may as well take them to him and lay them out before him. But when we pray, we must never think or seek to impose our will on our Heavenly Father. Instead, we are to pray that his will will be accomplished uh, in and through us. This is how Jesus prayed. This is how he taught us to pray. We prayed that prayer uh, already. Always, as part of every prayer, there is to be an expressed or unexpressed thy will be done petition that comes from a heart that's confident that God's will is always best. It's always best for us, and it's always best for his own glory. In agonizing face in the dirt prayer, Jesus uh, resolved the struggle of his will versus the Father's will by choosing voluntary, absolute surrender to the Father's will. In his prayer struggle, he is assured that his suffering of hell is the only way for the Father, Romans 3.25, to show his righteousness and to, uh, so that he might be the just and the justifier of those who have faith in Jesus. You see what the righteous judge did is he punished your sin, but he didn't punish it in you if you believe 
he punished it on his sinless son. His son was a substitute for you. Now, Jesus returns to his prayer partners three times. He finds them sleeping. On each of the first two occasions, he confronts them with their failure to be alert and their need to pray. He reminds them that they are to pray not just for him, but for themselves. He said, if you don't pray for yourselves, you're going to succumb to temptation. And of course, that temptation that's in view from the verses that precede our text is that they will deny Jesus, which in fact, they eventually do. The message is for the three. In Mark 14, 38, Jesus says, could you not watch and pray that you might not enter into temptation? Your spirit is willing to stick with me and to die for me, <coughs> but the flesh is incredibly weak. Now, Jesus returns to his place of private prayer two times after finding the apostles sleeping. Mark 14, 39 informs us that each time Jesus pray, prayed, his prayer was basically the same prayer, basically uh, the same words offered up to the Father. But from reading Jesus' interactions with his disciples when he comes back to them on these occasions and finds them sleeping, it is obvious, and you study it, that our Lord has been strengthened by his first prayer and his subsequent prayer sessions. Jesus' prayers haven't changed according to the text. It hasn't changed what Jesus must experience, but the prayers have radically changed Jesus. The intense agony of soul that he experienced before the initial prayer is dramatically lightened as we go through this. <clears throat> and that's what happens to us. Prayer changes us even when the requests that we make are not granted or they're not granted immediately. Prayer is a means of grace. That means that through prayer, God grows us in faith and he infuses us with strength when we pray. The writer of Hebrews encourages us to come to God for strength in Hebrews 4:15 and 16. He says, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we, yet without sin. Let us therefore with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Now this invitation to go to the God who gives us grace, our high priest, who has lived our struggles is tied directly to Jesus' struggle in Gethsemane. And I know that because a few verses later in Hebrews 5, 7, the author writes, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard. <clears throat> in prayer, you receive what Jesus received in his time of great turmoil and struggle. God strengthened Jesus as he does us by the word and by his Holy Spirit. But Luke 22, 43 tells us that God sent an angel to minister to Jesus' soul and to strengthen him. Well, scripture tells us, Hebrews 1, 13 and 14, or it asks the question, are, are not angels ministering spirits sent out to serve those who inherit salvation. I think it's perfectly good theology to think that when you're struggling and you pray and you need strength, that God sends an angel or angels 
to, struggle, uh, to help you in your struggle as you pour out your heart to him. Now, the grace Jesus received in prayer is best seen when he returns to his disciples the last time. He comes not as one panicked, depressed, immobilized by the journey into hell that awaits him the next day. He comes to them as one who has gained victory over his flesh, flesh that recoiled from making his sinless soul an offering for sinners. Listen to the confident comment that Jesus makes when he returns, Mark 14, 41 through 42. Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise up, be going, see my betrayer is at hand. This is not the Jesus who entered uh, the, the deeper part of the garden with the three. This is not the Jesus who prayed in a cold, possibly bloody sweat. Our Lord, one person, two natures, a fully human one, fully divine one. He experienced Calvary, the wrath of God poured out on humans as a sinless human. Only in human nature could he suffer punishment as the perfect substitute for human sinners. The father's answer to the son's ardent prayer was, no, it's not possible for the cup to be removed. You must drink it. But through prayer, Jesus has been made ready to confidently meet his captors, to boldly face his unjust trials, and victoriously endure the cross. Now, oftentimes we think of prayer as primarily the means whereby we receive things from God that he wants to give us. We go to him and ask. And that's one aspect of prayer. Uh, again, James says that you do not have because you do not ask. But Gethsemane teaches us that in prayer, much more is accomplished. Prayer brings our hearts in, into conformity with God's will. It brings the grace of God to us so that we have strength and peace to endure in our struggles. And prayer even gives us access to the ministry of angels in our lives. Very briefly, in the garden, we are assured of Jesus' love for his own. To understand this event in Jesus' life is to begin to plumb the depths of Jesus' love for each of us who believes in him. The thought of having to experience the cross for you created panic in Jesus. It created anxiety and dread. Anxiety and dread that leave him spread out on the ground in prayer. It caused his body to react in ways that are far from normal. The cold sweat of panic pours from Jesus' body. It's also possible that in the absolute terror of God's wrath poured out on Jesus' soul as he thought about that, it caused him to actually sweat blood. In Luke 22:44, again, Luke being a doctor, may not be using a figure of speech when he describes Jesus' sweat. He may record a phenomenon known to physicians where under intense physical and emotional trauma, in very rare situations, the capillaries in sweat glands break and blood pours out with the sweat from the sweat ducts. In the garden, Jesus confirms his unwavering commitment 
to drain the cup of God's wrath. He sees with his mind's eye God's tribunal. He sees himself standing in the dock as a condemned sinner. What he vicariously experiences produces such shock in Jesus, so much trauma, that it could very well be that sweat poured with blood comes down his face to the ground. Now look, you know this. I have sinned against a holy God in thought, word, and deed. I deserve to drain this cup forever in hell. But you do as well. But for repentant sinners who believe in his atoning sacrifice, Jesus has drained every drop of that cup so we never even have to sip it. In Gethsemane, God's answer to Jesus' request is, there is no way to save sinners, no alternative to your sacrifice. But Jesus' love for you is so intense that he wills to do the Father's will, to do that thing, the mere thought of which he thought might kill him. In 1860, a poem was written. Two years later, music was added to that poem. That poem went around the world. In 160 years, it's known everywhere. The first line of that poem, which became a hymn sung everywhere, is Jesus loves me, this I know. That's one of the most profound truths in all of scripture. And it's what you see in Jesus' garden. 